Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nasha Winters. Now, Dr. Winters is a naturopathic physician and the author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And if you haven't heard her story, you absolutely are in for a treat because she has a remarkable story, uh, which you're going to hear her talk about a little bit, where starting with a diagnosis at age 19 of basically end-stage ovarian cancer. And here she is. 20 plus years later where she's transformed her life of not just being a cancer survivor, but now helping people navigate their own way through cancer diagnoses and using lifestyle, including a low carb ketogenic diet, as well as a lot of uh, introspection and learning about yourself and taking care of yourself and how that can help through a cancer diagnosis and treatment. In addition to using things like fasting and mistletoe and so-called alternative therapies. But here's one of the keys that I really like about, about Nasha, Dr. Nasha, is that she understands the importance of bridging the gap between so-called alternative therapies and conventional therapies. That we can sharpen our tools, so to speak, that chemotherapy, radiation therapy, they have their place and we can use them better in conjunction with these alternative therapies. So I think that's a really great perspective that she brings forward, but also the perspective of seeing people as a human being and improving this whole experience. And if it improves longevity, great, but most importantly, improving quality of life uh, and improving how people live. Uh, I think you're really going to get a, a great perspective from her about that um, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Nasha Winters. Dr. Nasha Winters, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Great to be here with you again. Yes. Wonderful. Now you have such a remarkable story that that I know you've told many times, but it's definitely it's worth telling again, just because the power of the story and what it means for you and how you've helped transform the lives of so many people. So. I mean, if I can set the stage to to get started right away, I mean, you were age 19, which is a time where most people don't think about their health at all, right? You're, right. you're thinking about your life and everything that's going on and your future. And then you're given this diagnosis of stage four ovarian cancer at age 19 and basically given three months to live or something like that. And I, I mean, it, it's, you can't, overstate how that transforms someone's life and how that impacts someone's life. So tell us kind of, if you can summarize what was going through your mind at the time and how it's put you on your path that you're on now. Mm. Um, you know, it, I do tell this story a lot, but it, it helps kind of distill it down for me and remember components of it because at a time, like you said, at that age where most of us are in our lives, we're not thinking about our, our future. I mean, we think we're immortal. Right. Um, we we are so not concerned about, you know, we're so living in the moment of other things and trying to just inhale life in such a profound way. But I was actually a little bit different than a lot of my peers at that, at that time. I'd come from some pretty challenging background and was also in my first year of college, went the first person in my, in my immediate family to go to college. And a lot of burdens of financial concerns and issues and having to just take student loans out the whole bit. But I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I was interested in medicine. That was definitely always on my path, even from a young age. But 
I had been basically sick for my entire life and didn't even realize it. It's that concept of sort of the lobster thrown into the cold pot of water and boiled on the stove without realizing until it's too late that, oh God, this has taken my life. Um, That was me. That was sort of my background. A lot of health issues from a young age, digestive, um, lots and lots of skin issues, lots and lots of hormonal issues. And so everything for me just sort of, that was my norm. And, and so by the time it felt un, like abnormally unhealthy, um, I was so accustomed to even writing it off myself, like, oh, it's just kind of part of my digestive pattern or, oh, you know, I, you know too much information for your listeners, but it's like I, it, my doctors told my mom that pooping once a month was normal because that was my normal. Once a right? month? Oh, yeah. Oh, and so it was like, so digestive changes didn't really dawn on me. And a lot of the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very much starting in the digestive arena. And so for me, it just seemed like more intensity of the same that I'd experienced my entire life. So by the time I was ending up in and out of ER for almost a year, well, about eight, nine months, they just kept sort of saying it's IBS or it's polycystic ovarian syndrome or it's endometriosis or it's ectopic pregnancy. I'm like, well, that would be very difficult to do with this. I'm like, there was all these things they were throwing at me. And then basically they started treating me like a histrionic crazy patient and that it was all in my head. So they started down the road of more and more drugs to treat that, which I had terrible adverse reactions to. Every pharmaceutical for infections and pain. And I was just a living pharmacy at that point. And by the time I had a visiting doctor who came on staff, who happened to decide to take a little deeper look into what was going on, probably because he had a 19-year-old daughter, and I think he had a little compassion in a way that the other doctors who'd seen me week after week, month after month, had lost, which I think is something important for all doctors to remember. You That's know, a great to point. yeah, big one, because um, we get we all kind of get our judgments in in the medical profession for sure. Right. And this man saw me with fresh eyes and did the testing and shocked him as well as him telling me, which I felt the need to comfort him, that uh, basically it was too late and that um, I was in in-stage organ failure. That time I landed in the hospital, uh, terrible oxygen. My oxygen levels were in the 70s. Um, I was in kidney failure, liver failure. I was in uh, tachycardia. They weren't sure they could stabilize my electrolytes. I was terribly, terribly malnourished. I had severe, severe ascites, which everyone else just told me I needed to eat less. In, in this arena because they thought I was gaining weight even though my legs were sticks and my arms were sticks because I was terribly sarcopenic, um, muscle loss, the whole bit. So by the time they figured out that I was actually carrying a like an eight-liter water baby in my abdomen, that's when they realized I had mets in my liver, peritoneal implants, uh, lymph nodes everywhere, along with this giant mass in my right ovary. And between that, the lab tests, the uh, pulling out the fluid, sending it for biopsy, uh, a little local, um, a lot of other testing, they realized this woman is in end-stage ovarian cancer. And I was so sick and with my organ failure, they basically said one treatment will kill you in an instant. So if we treated you now, you'll die this week. If, we, if you wait, um, you'll be dead in three months. So those were my choices. And sometimes when we're given no way, we find ways. Yeah, so uh, I think, I mean, with that type of presentation and the way it was presented to you, I mean, how many people would just roll over and give up and say, that's it? But that Most. certainly wasn't yeah. you, yeah, right? Yeah, well, and I will tell you, and I've, I've said this in some other interviews I've done, I was at a time in my life when I really didn't want to be here. Yeah. Um, in fact, I tried to take my life several years before and was just in this place where the moment that I was told that I was going to die was a wake-up call. Wow. 
And it lit a pilot light in me that was like, oh, if they're telling you can't it be done, my stubborn gene for sure kicked in. And I basically set out to, to change that. Now, I honestly didn't think I was going to save my life, but I thought I would at least learn everything I could in the process and learn from the disease process itself. Like what message was it trying to tell me? I had some weird like sort of instinct about that at such a young age to know that there's this held a lot of good information. That's amazing because that's such a hard concept to grasp. Like what does cancer teach you? What gift did cancer give you? I mean, on the surface, it sounds ridiculous. It's cancer. How could it be a gift? But when you dig deeper and for you to have the insight as a 19 year old to sort of learn from that is really impressive. I mean, it shows, I hate to say it, but you were the right person to sort of be in this position to overcome it and transform your life from it. Totally. And, you know, my, my mom, like the people who knew me as a kid, I mean, they always, I, I was always sort of coined the, the, the outlier <laughs> of everything, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Right. Um, but I think that having a little bit of that, I don't really run with the flock, uh, was a gift as well. And my mom has that same gift. You know, she was third grade, I think, living in Coldwater, Kansas, a tiny town when she read the book On the Road by Jack Kerouac and decided she was a beatnik. And, and her library in the town burned the book, you know, it was wow. like, oh. So I think that that was infused in my own epigenetics of women overcoming. My grandmother lost her husband, um, you know, when, when my mom was seven um, in a gun accident and all kinds of crazy th- situations that these women in my like lineage had overcome. So I was no different than that. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating yeah. that there was in it your is. genetics, so to speak. Totally. And we yeah. learned a lot about that. We've had a lot of interesting studies that trauma or past issues in previous generations will change your epigenetic expression. And so I, we didn't know that you know, in 1991, that concept hadn't started to show up yet. But what we did know in 1991 was the emerging field of, of something called psychoneuroimmunology. Mm-hmm. And I was a dual major in school at that time for biology and chemistry on track to go to medical school. And I shifted my, my degree from uh, that to a major in psychology with a minor in biology, just knowing my own psychology and its impact on my biology. And at that time, the work of people like Candace Pert and Bruce Lipton were really coming to the forefront. And we were starting to get the science and the data to back that our thoughts, our traumas, our experiences change our immune system and change our physiology in a profound way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this emerging field saying is not all about the the biology, but there's a a, a body brain connection, which is which is really interesting. And I want to definitely get into more. But so more along your timeline. I mean, somehow. I mean, not to fast forward through too much because I know there was a lot forward. going on yeah, there. Yeah. But you're able to you're able to recover from this. You're able to learn more about it. But you also started to learn about cancer being a metabolic disease rather than sort of a genetic disease or this two-hit theory. And so I want you to to describe that a little bit more because this, the approach that we take for what cancer is can really frame what we can do about it both for treatment and prevention. So tell us about the difference between it's your genetics or it's, it's a metabolic disease or is it a combination of both? So I really appreciate that question because there are two camps now. We have the somatic camp, which are the you know, the folks that are saying that it's just a Russian roulette game, it's just bad luck. If you get a disease process like cancer, it's just, you know, there's nothing you can do. You're a sitting duck. That's a very bleak way to be on this planet, in my personal opinion. It's also the science is showing that that's not true, despite these, uh, this particular group out of Harvard still trying to publish papers saying, saying something different. This 
many years later into as recent as 2017. So in the other, down the hallway of the same institution is a group of people really pushing the concept of this metabolic cause. So things happening down at our energy processing plant level of our body, which is our mitochondria. A lot of people remember that as our mighty mitochondria from sixth grade biology class. Um, But that's where sort of the magic happens. That is actually when we talk about things like the fountain of youth, there's not an exogenous outside of us pill or potion to change this. It's an internal process that happens at the cellular energy level at our mitochondria. And really our mitochondria are our fountain of youth. They are the longevity um, mecca of how to change this. So to kind of take that a little bit further, you have one camp that says it's genes, it's predetermined, there's nothing you can do about it. You have this other camp saying, hey, you know, and actually the other camp says genes have nothing to do with it. It's just the metabolic powerhouse process. And yet I'm a believer that we have the genes that can load the gun, but it's our choices, our day-to-day diet lifestyle choices that impact the health and behavior of those mitochondria that pull the trigger. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it because when you're in one camp or the other, dismissing the other camp, I mean, you can't completely dismiss the fact that there are genetic variations that happen that make cancer much more likely, but not everybody with those mutations get the cancer. So there's clearly something else influencing it. But also it's interesting, the, the genetic the genetic explanation for cancer says it's not your fault, right? Which is nice for people to hear. Whereas on the one hand, the metabolic explanation in a way almost says it's your fault, which is kind of a hard discussion to have, isn't it? it? And that's really, in fact, when I have had this conversation, I'm very mindful of that because I knew at that young age, at 19, I knew that I came from a long line of trauma, you know, to keep it simple. I knew that I had uh, come from a, you know, something known as the ACE score, which is Adverse Childhood Events Score. Because I was a psychology major as well, we started to learn that these 10 questions on this ACE score questionnaire that any of your listeners can download online and take the questionnaire themselves, for for these 10 questions, for any yes you have, these are 10 questions regarding your experience in life before the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And for every yes you have, you increase your risk of, of chronic illness and cancer in your adulthood by 10%. So let's say you have four out of the 10 yeses, and that means you have a 40% higher likelihood of having cancer or some type of major chronic illness in your adulthood over people who didn't, who had a zero, all right? So just to give reference, I had 10 out of 10, of course. So if there was a, something that made me say, I also came to this world experiencing things that that I didn't have a choice around, that weren't my day-to-day decisions. They were decisions of other people around me and other situations around me. And I also knew, just like you said in a moment, what made you decide to fight and change it versus just be a victim to it. I had also seen the victimhood card in my family of origin a lot, and I knew I, de- I never would fit that mold. And so I was like, well, what can I do? That's what led me on this now almost 28-year journey of what is in my power? What is in my control? And there are things that I still learn today that I can improve upon. And so to me, it's a learning process. Once you know something, then it frankly is your fault. And that sounds harsh. But when we know each time you take a cigarette puff, 
that you are taking, you know, seven seconds off your life and that you change all your glutathione status and you absolutely wipe out your antioxidants and you lower your immune function and you increase all these inflammatory cytokines. You know that the data is out there and yet people still do it. Yes, it's an addiction, but you can get help with addictions. So it's that type of thing for me. I learned processes for myself that gave me the power to know why and then to implement something to change the course. And that's what I try and teach people that you didn't know. Like I didn't know about you know, body care products that were endocrine disruptors. I didn't know that vitamin D was critical. I didn't know that um, being a, a, a fast food, junk food vegetarian was actually harmful to my health. I thought it was actually doing something good for my health and the planet. Yeah. There were so many ahas that I learned in this time. It didn't happen overnight. Like I said, I'm still learning. So I teach my patients, it's a journey. It's not an event. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great perspective because when I, I led with the question that the metabolic approach makes it seem like it's that person's fault. But really, if you don't know any different, then it really isn't. And it's sort of our job to educate people about what the risks are. But when you come down to defining risks, it's difficult because the study you talked about with the with the ACE score, yeah. I mean, that's, those studies aren't causative. Those studies are associative. Right, right, right. Um, right. But it's certainly, if there's an association, it needs to be paid attention to right. for something like this. And it's hard for the average person to sort yeah. of connect the dots too. Yeah. Like why would, a, why would a bad childhood event lead mm. your risk of cancer? That does, mm. on the surface, it kind of yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. But the study showed an association. So was it something about, you know, the, the lifestyle you lived or, or um, people who are in those situations tend to eat more junk food or something like choices, that yeah. could be different things, but you, you, you can't completely close your eyes to the association. Um, but you didn't learn all this as a 19 and a half year old, did you? So how were you able to, to make it through that initial step to get you on this path to learn all these things? First of all, there actually are studies now showing that the ACE scores are more valid than just the association. Oh, really? Based on, we can actually check for HDAC, um, HDAC inhibition, epigenetic expression. We can actually do those tests. We can look at physiologic changes. We can look at brainwave changes. So you can see that they have studies that are ongoing for decades at this point in you know, people who've experienced traumas. We can actually see brain mapping changes. So, so it has gotten down. That's why people like Candace Pert, who's now no longer with us, she she was, a, you know, she was the physiologist looking at the physiological changes of these traumas and, and, and stressors on our chemistry, which of course sets up the, uh, the playing field for a disease process. And then people like Bruce Lipton looking at your microbiology um, uh, and looking at what it was doing on that level. We've now had studies on the microbiome changes, the brainwave changes. And so really all fields of medicine have dove deep into this question and taken it from association more to there are some definite causative changes down at the cellular level, which is pretty wild. That is so pretty wild. It is. Now, would you say though, would you admit that still basically on the outskirts of oh, totally. medical practice? And, uh, yeah, totally. And why yeah. the hesitation to adopt it? Is it because mm. it's contrary to the model that exists and people only know what they know or like what, what, why the hesitation to make that more mainstream? Well, I think number one is there's part of that in that uh, the, the, the system of medicine today does not allow time for us to dig deep into somebody's uh, psychology yeah. and trauma. And even in my book that, you know, the metabolic approach to cancer, there's 10 major facets that affect this. And yet our last chapter is on the mental emotional, because frankly, it probably should be the first approach, but in human nature, that's the scariest and the hardest uh, peak to summit. And so it, it's not something you dive into unless you really are ready. And if, unless you have a really good team to support that. 
that. And it takes a lot more than the average seven-minute visit that our physicians and PAs and nurse practitioners are allowed with their patients because of a medical system. There's stigma. There's uh, insurance billing. It, it's not codable in many cases. So the, it's it, there's a lot of reasons, I believe. I believe, and there's not a lot of interest to fund studies because there's, you know you don't really want to give a drug. We try to for these situations, but really they're about mindfulness and changing trauma patterns and changing diet and lifestyle patterns, and those just frankly don't bring in the bottom bottom dollar. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you are someone who has had these traumatic experiences, you can't undo them. So what can you do moving forward to try and decrease your risk of, of chronic disease? That kind of comes back to how did you figure this out at 19 and how are you still figuring out it yeah. almost, you know, at 48? And so it's, it's an ongoing process of learning. Um, and, and it's an ongoing process of like each time we learn something new, we apply it. And it's, it's a, I wish I'd had me 20 some years ago because this would have been a much faster faster process of how we can test, assess, and address someone in the moment that they're in. Yeah. Um, and it is little digestible pieces at a time of knowing, hey, this, this affected me. This is exactly, this is the gene. This is like the loaded gun we talked about of that's my life experience and I can't change that, but I can change how I react to it, respond to it, and how I move forward from this moment. And those are things that can happen at the cellular level from your dietary choices, from who you associate with, from the emotional um, support you get in whatever, whether it's through your faith or through counseling or through psychedelic experiences, whatever may change that sort of neural you know, network hmm. um, and life experience for you inside to have a different perception and observation of the world around you, which will align you with making different choices. Because your point was beautiful earlier when you said, well, kind of the chicken or the egg, the nature nurture concept of are these folks sicker because of choices they continue to make because of that trauma? And it's true, we kind of get stuck in a rut. Yeah. And these types of things we're learning now, we can basically help people build new pathways. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is, yeah. Yeah, and, and fascinating and sometimes difficult to wrap your head around. Totally. But the other side of this this metabolic approach mm -hmm. to cancer seems like very a lot easier to understand when you're talking about glucose and yes. insulin yes. and cancer growth. Uh, so tell us about that, what we've learned about that. What I love about it is that's often where I start with people because it's very tangible. Right. They can see it. They can feel it. And the cool thing is the side effect of that is that it is changing neural pathways. It is changing BDNF in the brain, which is a brain-derived neurofactor. It is changing uh, dopamine response, which is our, you know, there's only two things that make you feel good in the world, which is serotonin and dopamine. So it changes that balance and expression. It upregulates genetics that make you more resilient and more robust. Um, it changes your immune system function. So even if they're starting on the more tangible, it is impacting a lot of the intangible simultaneously. And then people start to feel more ready to go there mm -hmm. in the future at their own pace. So with that, the metabolic changes are huge. What we're finding in all chronic illness today, although I look at cancer, it could be autism, cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, they're all the same, you know, sprouting from the same broken metabolic fuel functioning, fuel choice system. And as you've heard me say before in our previous conversations and throughout the book, up until about 1850, we were all quote unquote low carb. Right? right? About 30% of our calories came from carbohydrates. And we worked very hard to get hold of those carbohydrates and ingest those carbohydrates. Today, it's 
70 to 80% on average. And we don't have to work very hard to we get them. We don't. I mean, I love that yeah. the movie, what um, uh, LA stories where they get in the car and drive two, two houses down to their neighbors. <laughs> That's yeah. what we do today. Yeah. Right. yeah. 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 So we have changed that energy system, energy out, energy in, as well as the type of sort of carriers those energy systems are in. So when we're bathing the body with GMOs and uh, glyphosate and things like that that have never been exposed to the human condition before, that sort of adds insult to injury. That sort of speeds up this process that didn't exist 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And it's a fascinating field because when we talk about you know, do refined carbs and, and high sugars, do they cause cancer? Does this type of eating pattern and lifestyle cause cancer? There's sort of the there's a, a thought process behind it, and then there's a, an evidence base, and they don't always agree. I mean, the evidence isn't strong necessarily that it does, but we have some evidence that insulin is a growth factor for, for breast cancer cells. Makes sense. That um, cancer cells um, need glucose for fuel. They can't burn fatty acids for fuel as a, as a general statement. So all these things sort of make sense that anything that's going to increase your glucose and increase your insulin can increase your risk of cancer. But that's still functioning a little bit outside of our current scientific yeah. consensus. So yeah. when you're, you, I mean, you've made your career and your life helping people in this field. Um, how do you, how do you, what am I getting at? How do you regulate or recognize in yourself sort of that difference between what you're recommending and yeah. what scientific consensus says is proven? Right. Well, you know, first of all, back at my diagnosis, I was in a very small four-year liberal arts school that didn't have a fancy library yeah. and didn't have all the newest textbooks. Right. That was a present for me because one of the first books I found after my diagnosis was uh, a book by Otto Warburg. Right. And a lot of the research of his time, which was about the metabolic and the fuel sources for cancer cells. And this is back in 1991. You know, our dietary re you know, recommendations were hardcore into the low fat, you know, high sugar, high carbohydrate, low, don't eat protein, you know, don't eat, like it was just, uh, <laughs> eggs will kill you, you know, salt is bad. I mean, we were really hitting our, our stride yeah. with that ideology. Right. So um, me as a vegetarian for several years prior to that, prior to my diagnosis, actually. Um, of course, vegetarianism has a spectrum, just like ketogenic has a spectrum, right? So I was the iceberg, lettuce, velastic, pickle, wonder bread, um, uh, uh, miracle whip. That was my sandwich every day, Yeah. right? There is no food in that mix no. at all. And so, but you can do all of these things healthfully or non-healthfully. And that was, I was clearly on that end of the spectrum. But what we started to learn in the research over all these years is that you're right. There are some studies showing, hey, there there could be possibly that sugar causes this, but I'm not even of the belief system of that. What I've learned, and I'm actually going to be speaking on later today a little bit, is food is is tied to a lot of emotions, mm -hmm. a lot of traditions, a lot of cultural things, and right. many times under duress, we don't reach for what we need that is the best for us. We reach for what is going to get us through. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism. So there's a lot of emotion attached to it. We have a lot of self comfort from the food choices we make, and frankly, carbohydrates are the balm in pretty stressful, intense times. Yeah, that's what we tend to reach towards. It's not like, oh, I want a really comforting bowl of broccoli. That's not where we're going in those moments. Yeah. Um, 
So, kill for an avocado. Uh, can, actually, I do that now, so I do yeah. kill for an avocado now, yeah. but didn't back then. In fact, I hated avocados back yeah. then. Um, so there's that side, but what we have learned in a lot, again, just like I was talking about the different camps, the different uh, specializations in medicine and science that are looking at trauma impact on physiology, we're now starting to understand what a high carbohydrate, high sugar, high insulin does in various physiological components of our body. So we know that it uh, lowers IgA and wipes out natural killer cell status for up to seven hours with just a single teaspoon of sugar. Wow. Okay. We know things like it basically browns us inside that glycosylated end product does all kinds of damage to our peripheral nervous system. So when people start to get that shuffle and don't feel the bottom of their feet or get tingling in their hands and feet, that is sugar destroying your nerve endings. And, and basically frying them like butter, like browning butter in a pan. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's a it's more like browning sugar versus the butter side of things. And then we're you know we're starting to learn about oh gosh maybe it has more of an impact on the brain health than we ever thought that things like certain brain tumors, when you look at scans, they are super glucose sensitive. They love their sugar. And we're seeing now Alzheimer's is now known as a diabetes three. So we're starting to look and again it's like all these little islands are having their own experiences. But now because of people like you and Diet Doctor and all these other things, we're talking to each other and we're showing up at conferences like Low Carb and other places to start to realize, wow, that person talking about Alzheimer's, that really matches what I'm seeing in the cardio world or the diabetes or the obesity or the autism or the cancer world. Funny how it's all interrelated. It's 100%. And to me, I come and hear my colleagues speaking in cardiology to learn how to take care of patients with cancer. Yeah. You know, that's, it's huge. And I think that in some ways that makes our jobs much easier. Yeah. Much easier than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, for sure. When what we're talking about is giving people the best chance for a healthy life. And that encompasses diabetes and heart disease and neurologic disease and cancer. It's not that it's going to give you or prevent you from getting it, but it's giving you the best chance to live a healthy life, right? And typically if we choose, if we are choosing certain foods, they're changing our thought process. They're changing our physiology, our, our endocrine you know, hormones. They're changing our neurotransmitters, which will often equate to changes in how you feel right. and what you think and how you perceive. And so that sets you up for a lot of other different choices that are difficult to tease out in a single RCT study. It just, you know, it's just a difficult thing to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. It's a lot of moving targets. A lot, Yeah. Which which brings up the treatment of cancer, yeah. right? So we, um, you can look at it in a couple of different ways because there are some people out there in, in the, on the internet who say chemotherapy is poison and awful. You shouldn't use it. Radiation therapy just you know kills people, and we should all just go on a ketogenic diet. But that's that's dangerous. That's dangerous, right? Yeah. Yeah. And but instead, that's what I've liked so much about your message is that you try and bridge the gap between traditional cancer therapy, which, you know, in many ways is miraculously curative Mm -hmm. and other ways is a little less effective, but trying to find ways with your lifestyle to make it more effective. So so tell me about that a little bit more. And, you know, that is, it's one of my missions is to break, is to like fill in that chasm, you know, build that bridge because the more I hear on the only standard of care side uh, creates a lot of problems. And the more I hear on just the alternative or the integrative side causes a lot of problems. The way we use standard of care can be drastically improved upon because we haven't seen any major changes in 50 years. Right. Okay. So it's not to say, it's like, we have this tool, let's tweak it. Let's see how we can make it better. 
And that is precisely where something like a ketogenic diet comes in or some of the other therapies that I promote in my and what I've learned over the time. So let's use radiation as an example. We now understand, and luckily there's even a handful of radio oncologists here at this conference and th that have come to previous conferences that put all of their patients on a ketogenic diet prior to starting chemo, uh, radiation and ongoing through and for up to six months to a year after. And the reason being is that the studies, the literature has shown us, the, the uh, studies have shown us that patients who have elevated insulin and elevated glucose have basically desensitized their cancer cells to the radiation and increased sort of the scatter and the damage to the healthy tissue around the tumor. Mm. So we've shown this, we've been showing this since the 1980s. Really? And yet the conversations are not being had with the patients no. outside of a very small elite handful of radio oncologists that are making waves now, thank God. Because to me, it should be standard of care that you assess the insulin, the insulin growth factor, the hemoglobin A1C of all of your patients before initiating radiation therapy. Because frankly, you're wasting their time and yours and increasing secondary cancers, increasing progression and recurrence of cancers, and basically negating any good effect of the radiation at all when insulin is still surging through the system. Wow, that's interesting. So, and again, it's it's the um, sort of the disconnect of the evidence that we don't have the outcome trials proving it, but we have a mechanism that suggests it should work. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where when we take that, it's not to say that radiation is bad, but when we can basically harness it in a different way, yeah. you can focus it. Like a, you think about using the ketogenic diet, like the Trojan horse that carries the radiation to its intended target and has a much higher, so they do, we have studies showing it has a much higher kill rate of the tumor cells yeah. and a much less rec recurrent rate and definitely a much less recurrence of a, of a brand or a, a brand new cancer because radiation is a known carcinogen. It's a known carcinogen, right? right? We're so, using a carcinogen right, to treat a cancer. Exactly. Right. And so, I mean, that's the, that's the place where you can make these standard of care therapies work much better. We're seeing similar evidence in the realm of, say, fasting with chemotherapy. Right. And thank God for people like Walter Longo, because we've been saying this since the 1920s, that this is the way to go. Mm. Yet also in the latter part of the 1920s, doctors started freaking out about starving, already starving patients because they didn't understand cachexia. Right. They didn't then, they don't now. So define cachexia okay. for us because this is important. Yeah, so cachexia is a concept of meta, it's actually defined as metabolic muscle wasting. It has nothing to do with calories. Yeah. It has nothing to do with caloric intake and it's fueled by two things, inflammation and sugar. Mm -hmm. Actually, a third secondarily, but I think it's more of a response, which is angiogenesis, which is new blood vascular growth. But ultimately, when we eat a high-carbohydrate diet or even still a quote-unquote normal carbohydrate diet in that moment, it can stimulate more rapid weight uh, metabolic weight loss through muscle wasting. And so what happens is it basically stores up the fat and breaks down the muscle for a preferred fuel source. And the irony is if you feed it more ho-hos and ding-dongs and, and, and you know high sugar smoothies and milkshakes, which the American Cancer Society suggests that you do. In fact, their number one recommendation is things like cookies, ice cream, yeah. angel food cake. They have their list of top 10 foods to eat and they're all highly processed, high sugar, high carbohydrate laden foods. So on the surface, it seems crazy, but the rationale is you need your strength. Right. You need yeah. your fuel yeah. and your calories yeah. to get you through this. Because let's face yeah. it, I mean, it's a difficult time and yeah. frequently yeah. people are nauseous, people don't want to eat, yeah. so just get any food yeah. in that you possibly can. Yeah. But 
Where does that break down? I love it. So that's where people like Dr. Longo have come along and said that probably our biggest benefit of chemotherapy is the fact that it makes people so bloody ill that they can't eat. Wow. Right? That's what I know. And so I've seen that time and again. And, and what he was able to show was patients who fast for two days before, the day of, and two days after. So for a five-day total around their chemotherapy, they don't need the pro-drugs. They recover much quicker. Yes, they'll lose some weight in the process of that five days, but they bounce right back and stabilize better than the patients who just keep on keeping on. And they um, also have better response to the tumor burden. The tumor burden is reduced even faster in that population. And the patients feel better. And I've had the, the pleasure of working with thousands of patients who've done it kind of what I call the Walter Longo way and the normal, quote unquote normal, which is highly abnormal way. And I'm here to tell you that the patients know the difference immediately. The idea of fasting with their chemo terrifies them, mainly because of the terrible misinformation and mythology that their nutritionists at the oncology office and their oncologist is telling them. So they're terrified. Their families are terrified. But when they trust and lean into the process and start to understand, this is a metabolic, uh, non-caloric process that will be stabilized with a proper amount of protein and fat and a reduction in carbohydrates or even no food at all. Yeah. Totally shifts it for them. And when they live it and feel it and experience it, that's when they won't go back. And then they say, can I keep doing three to five day fast every month? And people like Dr. Walter Longo say six months post chemo or radiation, people should be doing a three to five day fast every month just to clean up from the damage of the standard of care treatment and can lower rate of recurrence and progression at that point. And he, as well as others say, for folks who've never had cancer, that maybe a five to seven day fast once to twice a year will be your sort of gateway to longevity. Yeah. Ongoing. Yeah, it's interesting how fasting plays into it. And, and if you get into the mindset of a patient who's newly diagnosed with cancer, which- Overwhelmed. You, yeah, yeah, you're overwhelmed. You're scared. You don't know what to do. You don't know who to trust. And if your doc, you know, you, you sort of have to put your faith in the medical system and the doctor you're seeing. And if your doctor says fasting's crazy, and on the other hand, you read something that it's wonderful, yeah. it's just more confusion right. and, and make you more overwhelmed. So what kind of advice can you give to people about how to sort of sift their way through the madness? Good. Well, first of all, I always remind them, uh, I ask them to ask their doctor, how much nutrition did you have in school? And I even spoke to a huge group of neurologists recently at a big annual uh, international conference on brain tumors and ketogenic diet. And basically I asked all of them, how many of you use the ketogenic diet with your patients? Not a single one, raise their hand. How many of you have patients asking about it? Probably 50% raise their hand. How many of you have ever tried or utilized a ketogenic diet? One person raised their hand. And I said, how many of you had education on nutrition in medical school? Not a single person. Raise your hand. This was 175 people. 25% um, or less medical schools even offer an elective course in nutrition. So just like you shouldn't ask me for mechanical advice on how to fix your car, <laughs> Please do not ask a physician their nutritional advice, period. Yeah. Or an RD, unless the RD nutritionist has gone on to do more education because they're trained by an industry. On a, they're, they're trained basically by big pharma. And so they're, they're, they're not in a therapeutic state. So that's number one. That's what I tell patients right away. I'm a little bit out there with that, but I can, after this many years with tens of thousands of patients under my belt, I feel a little bit confident to do that. Number two, I remind patients that this is the biggest uh, challenge of cancer is the diagnosis. That is the medical emergency because the way you respond and react to it may be what plays the biggest role in your outcome. Mm. 
Okay. And so there are a few, yes, there are teeny percentages, probably 0.1% that actually have a medical emergency that need to actually do something immediately, right? Surgery, radiation, et cetera. Most of us can take a moment. Okay. It took seven to 10 years for that cancer to be big enough for you to even know it was there. It doesn't happen overnight. So you can take an extra seven to 10 days or seven to 10 weeks to decide your next course. And when you do that, you start to find that there's a lot more information out there available to you that your doctors just simply don't have the time, the energy, or the desire to learn about. It just, it, their schedules are crazy. I have extreme compassion for the medical community. It's a system now that's very broken. Yeah. Not, and the, not, not the doctor's hearts or belief systems, but the system really doesn't allow it. So that's number two. So I bring compassion for the practitioners as well. I encourage the patients to start to, I give them a few handfuls of literature, especially a lot of Dr. Longo's work. So they start to educate themselves about that. I have them really read up on cachexia to understand that. I educate the family yeah. on this to say, you can give your loved ones, everyone wants to do a food train. You can give them recipes. You can give them ideas on here's my food list. These are the things I can eat because everyone wants to help. And we do that through the love of food. And so you can give them guidance. You don't have to eat Aunt Betty's, you know, angel food cake. You can have her ketofy it. Give her a Maria Emmerich's cookbook for crying out loud, right? That's a this, great idea. I didn't think about do. that because yeah. so many people want to rush out and help. Yes, and how yes. are they going to help? They're going to bring the lasagna over. They're going right. to bring the cookies over. And we can upgrade them. Yeah. Interesting. So you can do, and the cool thing is when you do that, you start to hit the masses because they start to think about, well, why can't they eat the angel food cake? Yeah. And it starts to trickle into their homes. In fact, a really crazy story, I just flew back from Greece from a, a 10-day retreat for myself. In the, and I love the blue zone, Mediterranean diet of longevity and whatnot, which is a whole other topic. But when I, got, when I was coming through security, my name kept being called over and over. And I thought, oh gosh, am I getting my flight canceled? What's going on? I have to go through secondary. Like They've probably called me 10 times now and I'm working my way towards it, but it's just taking forever. I get up to the front of the line, sure, they're going to tell me I don't have a flight. And what they tell me, they're like, are you the author? And I'm like, what's going on here? I'm in Athens for crying out loud. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. They're like the pilot, he and his wife have both had cancer, had got your book, read your book, applied your book, and said you have changed his life. Wow. Which makes me want to cry right now because yeah. it was just an, a shift in their understanding and their consciousness because all the advice they'd been given, they knew it didn't quite resonate but that's all they were given right. was this one perspective. So somehow they stumbled upon my book, read it, and changed everything. Both of them are doing awesome. He upgraded me to first class. I have never even ridden nice. business class on an airplane. So an international <laughs> flight, my biggest challenge was having them help me deal with all the technology in my, in my little booth because I didn't know what to do with anything. Oh, that's but, fantastic. But the point is that once we know we can make different choices. And that's what my life 28-year journey has been of learning how can we sort of biohack and make standard of care better? And how can we have better outcomes and better quality of life? And then have people not so afraid of the chemo or the radiation because they realize I can make the outcomes much better with this. I can have a much more comfortable experience. And when you talk to my patients who'd done standard of care before ever meeting me, you had a recurrence, which 70% will, per yeah. the American Cancer Society statistics, that then say, okay, I did it their way the first time, I'm gonna do it different. Right. Some people will pendulum all the way to the other side, which can be just as dangerous. So I love it when people kind of find me in the in-between pendulum of saying, how can I enhance this? And they'll say, I can't even believe how different I felt through chemo, through radiation, how much more energy. People told me all the time, I look better. I look, they can't believe I have cancer. 
we can do this so much better. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great perspective about about sharpening the tools, using yeah. the tools for a more focused way. But I mean, we have to be honest, not everybody's going to have the response you had. Not everybody's going to have this positive outcome. And that's when I think it falls back on what you just said, how people feel through the process, yes. because that's important too. You know, a cure is the goal. In, increasing lifespan is certainly a goal with cancer, but so is increasing just the quality of life as you're going through this process, knowing that not everybody's going to have the outcome. So how do you, how do you educate people about that and, and kind of deal with that as a, as a person who's been through this and helping your patients get through it? Well, I mean, first of all, none of us are getting out of here alive. Yeah. Okay. So the, one of the gifts of cancer is you, you might have uh, your days numbered. And so in that, it changes, it, it distills things and creates such a clarity and laser sharp focus of, okay, if I only have this much time, what am I going to do with it? For many people, for other people, it paralyzes them and they really fall through the cracks and become the statistic of, hey, you're dead in three months and to the day they're dead in three months. Mm. But there's a, 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 large no, a large number that actually kind of wake up, right? And, and say, how am I gonna live differently? That alone can make a, such a change. I mean, in fact, purpose, they're doing a lot of studies on purpose. People with a purpose right. have much longer you know, progno have better prognosis and longer survival rates versus people are like, ugh, I'm a sitting duck, I'm dead, right? right? So there's that side. The other side is that um, we, none of us know what our real time is on this planet. None of us actually have an expiration date you know, around us. So I always remind the patient of that. I'm like, so how can we enhance that? How can we do the best with this? And then the other side of it is that um, in every patient I've ever asked who were given very grim diagnoses and, and had very big, poor prognosis, even when I did my assessment, I'm like, we're, we are, we're, we're imminent, it's coming. Um, every single person will tell me, and many studies have been done on just quality of life questionnaires, people will always choose quality over quantity, right. always. And so if people are like, if I get two more months because of this targeted therapy drug that will destroy my quality of life, I choose quality. I hear that nine times, maybe 9.9 .9 times out of 10. Do you think not enough people are having that discussion though? That's just it. Yeah. And that's what I also, I give, I have a question, like basically have, these are the questions to take to your doctor because your doctors, they, I, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they give the news of something that it can be so tragic and yet you can deliver it in a way. The delivery is everything. Yeah. Right? So like, when I was given my message of, hey, you're dead, it was through a man bawling his eyes out with a 19, knowing that he related because he had a daughter my age, right? And then when I went to the oncologist after that di official diagnosis, they basically said, you're, well, I can't probably say that, but you're in trouble. Um, you're effed. We'll just say that. <laughs> All right. um, and Family that was, friendly. right, that was the essence of the message. And there was no hope. And there was almost like, I understand now because this doctor, and I have become friends again oh, really? all these years later. And this doctor's experience said, my knowing me over all these years has changed their experience. I bet. And so the way it, it, it shifted because they had made up their mind and their thought process affected mine, but it, it woke me up, it would kill others. And so with that information, again, comes choice. And that's where I tell people, take a breath. Um, on my website, I have a free little handout for people that's like five steps to do what to do when you're first diagnosed or have a re-diagnosis. Re and it really walks people through first breathe. Second of all, turn off Dr. Google 
and go inward. Don't start to talk to everybody because everybody's well-meaning advice can often be more detrimental than good. Yeah, I think I was lucky not to have Dr. Google in 91 and not to have all the, you know, all the information that's out there today. It actually helped me stay focused on what I needed. But today everyone's got a, my cousin did this and it cured him and this person did this and it cured them. Like, ugh, there is no one way. Yeah. We are all biochemically, epigenetically, emotionally individual, and we all need different things at different times. For some people, it may be a full-on standard of care with no regards to any additional support. For others, it may be nothing at all. You know, For others, it might be fully alternative. But in what I've experienced, the center point of bringing the best of both worlds into play has seemingly had the best outcomes. Where the, the funding for studies will come from, I don't know, but we're working on it. You know, our next step here is actually a um, build out of a huge um, project of a private owned hospital that's 100% under a research arm. Wow. And I, it, small little things on my side. That's yeah. what I do. Apparently, I was given 28 bonus years, so I'm going to use them wisely to keep on going. That's amazing. Because we have to do the studies to say, okay, we now know this person's epigenetics. We know their tissue typing. We know the, the disease, like the typical standard prognosis and statistics of their disease type. We know therapies that have shown to work, therapies that have shown not to work. We're starting to get clues of the pathophysiology of how we can address it. So let's weave it all together and start to collect all these important data points in a huge you know, um, artificial intelligence network system that starts to say, hey, you add radiation with ketogenic and hyperbaric, you get this outcome. You add uh, mistletoe to this immune therapy to lower all of the side effects of 80% of the time that these immune therapies will create, you get a whole nother outcome. You start to bring in mindfulness or meditation or fasting into these things. You start to get even different outcomes. And so that's what I'm excited about, that the future of medicine in the next 50 years is very hopeful. That sounds incredible. I'm getting chills just just hearing you say that. I mean, uh, and I wish you success because <laughs> everybody needs it. I yeah. mean, how many people are going to benefit from that? Which, which really talks about your transition mm-hmm. as a practitioner, yeah. which I want to bring up because yeah. you have helped thousands of patients, worked with thousands of people mm-hmm. individually, and now it seems like you've transitioned to helping the the other practitioners. Um, you know, the old saying, you can help one patient one-on-one, but you help yeah. one practitioner and you've already helped thousands of patients. So tell me about that shift, both how it happened in you internally and, and kind of what you're experiencing. Well, I did um, have the experience of the one-on-one for many years in private practice. And then the demand became so large that I started to host retreats. Yeah, And I'd have 20 or 30 people that I could say the message to at once versus one. And then the book came out. And then that was sort of the encapsulation of my message over 25 years that I collected at that point that was helpful to kind of give people the groundwork. And then I pulled out of practice so I could focus on the book and focus on um, just learning for myself because there's so much happening in the field of oncology today that I needed to keep my own tool set sharpened and, and prepared and to keep learning. I also travel to clinics and hospitals all over the world that are doing things way, I mean, Frankly, the U.S. is at least 35 years behind um, Germany. Uh, we're that far behind Asia, Southeast Asia, what they're doing with even radiation. I mean, there's so many things that we are way behind because we have a system that will, it takes an average as a study that came out in October 2018. So a study that came out in uh, October 2018 shows that the typical time it takes from information we're interested in studying, whatever that may be, uh, or even biotech devices, medical tech- technologies, 
from the moment it leaves the bench to reach the bedside, to reach basically the citizens out there, the people waiting and literally dying while they're waiting, it's an average of 17 years. Wow. 17 years. That's staggering. It is staggering. And so frankly, I have so many patients like, I'm not interested in waiting. Do it. And so thanks to some bills that came through in the last couple of years, like the Right to Try Act, so for people who are stage four who've exhausted all their standard of care options, are now basically being said, yeah, go ahead and try the hyperbaric oxygen. So basically, you know, while these patients are waiting for the data, a lot of them now, that's part of what this hospital is going to be. It's going to be, we're going to be working the bench to the bedside, but we're also going to be working the bedside to the bench. Right. Because we've already been doing that empirically for thousands of years. And now we're starting to study why certain Ayurvedic herbs worked or Chinese medical applications worked or fasting techniques worked. We're now doing studies of things that we've actually been utilizing successfully for, in some cases, thousands of years. Yeah. Right? And so we can do better. We can also change our research in a way that says, well, let's, let's, let's do good medicine. Let's do scientifically in, um, uh, uh, not, not proven, but scientifically informed medical care. So we're basing things on other things we've learned that we can say, hey, these, that makes sense. Let's see what they do together. So that's where we're moving with this piece. And um, I want to make sure I'm getting back to, to specifically where we were going with this question before the, a little siren interruption. But, but ultimately, people need help now. And there's ways we can do it better. And there's ways that patients can do much of this on their own at home. Right? And so that, that's the case is that we're now coming up with some good standard testing, uh, t- tissue testing, molecular profiling, things like blood, liquid blood biopsies is starting to change the face of medicine as we know it, especially in the oncology world, that we don't have to give everybody the standard of care. We can actually move more to precise care saying, mm-hmm. hey, you might have breast cancer, but your sort of fingerprint of your breast cancer looks different than this person's. So we can treat it differently and it'll have a better outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, your approach is, is remarkable. And it's one thing to help individual patients. And it's another thing to then want to expand your, your scope so much. And then another thing to go further and also help with the research. I mean, you're really hitting it really? on all three levels. And that, that makes you remarkable for, for what you're doing. So I want to thank you for all your work and the impact you're having on people but also bringing it back yeah. to sort of the rational side of things. Right, like, right. Let's not get carried away. Let's not overspeak what we know. Right. Um, but let's use things in a reasonable, a safe, and a rational way. And I think that's such an important message. It's huge. And, and again, that's kind of, I'm, I'm remembering now where we were going with this of the one-on-one was great. The, the retreats impacted this. But what were happening after these retreats is now I had 20 or 30 people going back out into the field saying, I learned all this information, help me apply it right. to their practitioners. And the practitioner's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. What is this? So the bottleneck began to be through the practitioners. Mm-hmm. Some flat out saying, hey, that's BS or that doesn't exist or that's just, or just close my eyes to it and can't deal. I don't have time for that. I don't know what to do with this information. That's where we are right now is in this crossroads of now there are physicians because their patients are demanding it saying, I need to learn this stuff. Yeah. So that's where I'm doing my approach. As these are falling off my head. Um, my approach now is with uh, teaching doctors how to test, assess, and address each patient as an individual and how to enhance, enhance their standard of care outcomes and help them deal with any side effects and help with the disease prevention and um, uh Disease prevention recur of you know con, of recurrence, and so that's where I've been focusing my care 
now, but even that is filling up. So now I'm starting a process of training larger groups of physicians at once, kind of in a forum online. That's getting ready to start early 2020. And then eventually we'll have a hospital where physicians can come from all over the world and in a research environment, teaching hospital environment to learn this in real time, speaking with the experts in all arenas of medicine, because this hospital will have radiation done better. Yeah. Chemotherapy done better. Wow. Targeted therapies done better because we're going to be testing and assessing every single patient before they start any of their treatments to know what is the possible best course to start and how do we change it as we go along and then follow them for years to come. Well, I hope I never need it, but if I do need treatment, that's, right where, that's where I want right it on. for sure. Good. Gosh. Well, if a patient mm-hmm. or a physician yeah. um, or even like a hospital administrator yeah, yeah. wants totally. to learn more about this, yeah. where, where can you direct them to get more from you? Great. Well, right now you can find me on drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. That has tons of information. We have tons of podcasts. In fact, your nice original podcast is on there. Lots of uh, information, research, things that I like to kind of collect a few of my favorite things. There's also that little five free handout on five first steps to a diagnosis that's there for you um, to to take um, as well. Then you can follow me on all the typical social media, Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those crazy things under Dr. Nasha, um, Inc., or The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. You can find that in my book, information there. And then for the hospital, check out the Believe Big Institute of Health. Um, if you just go to the believebig.org website, there's a link there for the Believe Big Institute of Health, which is in its process of, of coming together. Wow. That's our working title right now because that's the uh, entity in which we're starting the, the funding of the process. But these are the same people that um, started the Hopkins trial on mistletoe. Um, we, they, they found philanthropic monies and donations to help help fund a trial that was otherwise never going to receive funding from NIH or other outside resources. And it's into its third year and incredibly successful, the use of mistletoe in cancer patients, stage four, end of life, that were otherwise not given any other options. Mm -hmm. And they're now seeing some pretty extraordinary things. I can't wait for the data to be published. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for your passion and for all your work. And thank you for taking the time to join me on the Diet Doctor podcast. So amazing. And thank you. I love that you've made this transition and Diet Doctor is an incredible resource. I agree. Well, thanks. Thanks. You have a great day. Thank you.